Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Robin James. Robin is a writer, editor, and philosopher whose latest book is The Future of Rock and Roll, 97XWXOY and the Fight for True Independence, and is published by University of North Carolina Press. Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So first up, please share with us what your book is about. So the book uh, on the surface is a history of the former uh, Oxford, Ohio radio station 97X WOXY. Uh, sort of tells the story of uh, its uh, selection of a modern rock format being one of the first modern rock stations in the U.S. to its growth to being one of the first internet broadcasters, uh, internet radio broadcasters, uh, and it was called by Rolling Stone the last great independent radio station in the late 90s. And then um, was, we think, the first FM station to transition from an FM station to an online-only station. And then the sort of trials and tribulations that it faced um, as, you know, a kind of pioneer of internet radio broadcasting. Uh, So that's that's kind of the topic. But what the book really argues is that what defined WOXY was its idea of independence or the idea that independence could only be meaningfully practiced with and for other people, right? It's independence is not independence from other people, but it's independence with other people to do new and innovative things. And I I argue that that's what guided the station and every single one of its crisis points to become, you know, something innovative and great. And it's um, something that the WOXY community still practices today. And the, the station still exists for that reason. So for example, just last weekend, there was the 2023 Modern Rock 500 broadcast on the internet station Inhaler Radio, where the um, over 30 of the station's former DJs got together to uh, do station breaks and arrange a countdown of the top 500 songs uh, in the station's library. And that used to be something they would do annually on Memorial Day. And they, they brought the tradition back for uh, the station's 40th anniversary. And Inhaler Radio has indicated that they will continue to do more modern rock 500s in the future. So I think that's just a great example of this idea that, you know, when you get together with other people and exercise your creativity, you really can do independent things and that people still sort of use WOXY as a vehicle for that. So thank you so much for that. We're going to talk a little bit more about the independent uh, philosophy a little bit later on as we break down some of the themes in your book. But I want to start with in the intro for your book, you say that the story of 97X is the story of its philosophy. And I want to know more about that that introductory philosophy uh, first off. Yeah. So um, 97X was never supposed to work. It was a very small 3000 watt radio station in Oxford, Ohio. And the signal reached part of, but never all of three different markets, Cincinnati, Dayton, and Richmond, Indiana. So it was basically impossible to sell the station to advertisers in traditional terms because it had terrible market share in all of its three markets because it was split up. So uh, the owners, Doug and Linda Baylog, uh, they bought the station in 1981 and they ran it very traditionally. And then in 83, they were basically like losing money left and right. And they're like, we have to do something. So what they did was they uh, surveyed their listeners. They had what they called the uh, rock advisory board that uh, was constituted by some of the students at the college in, in the town where the station was located. And they listened to 
uh, one of their uh, station DJs, Steve Dedalus, he had lived in LA for a while prior to coming to Oxford. And he had recorded some of K-Rock, which was the first kind of post-punk station in the US. And both the Rock Advisory Board and Daedalus said, well, you should switch the station to a modern rock format, right? And so the, the beginnings of this was, this philosophy of independence was that if you, you know, sort of give, if you work with your community and you listen to them and you have sort of faith in your employees, then you can do great, great things, right? So um, there was this, just this idea of sort of being collaborative, but also um, breaking radio orthodoxy, right? They, there's one of the program uh, directors, I believe it's Darcy Fife says, this is in the 90s, that the 97X mission is to destroy all forms of radio orthodoxy, right? So uh, they embodied that, for example, by um, the idea that um, their mission was to play more new and different music, right? That they played more different songs per day than any other radio station in the country, right? So that there's this idea then that, you know, you're giving people an expansive um, uh, purview of songs, right? That you're, again, sort of giving listeners what they want, not what, you know, the business says they do. So out of this sort of uh, inability to do the sort of standard radio business because the, you know, just the, the station, the conditions of the station wouldn't let them just kind of be a boring old radio station. Um, they developed this idea that you can be independent if independence is something that you work with other people towards, right? So this um, guided them through the Telecom Act and the subsequent alt-rock radio bubble of the 90s where, you know, corporate alt-rock narrow casts to uh, white men 12 to 24 and attempt to shore up their core audience. Well, 97X says, we, we don't do that. We are not for a single demographic of people and we are not about a single style of music, right? So it's just this, this idea of independence that if you, um, you know, uh, are open to, no, you know, if you don't have rigid boundaries around who you're working with or what kind of music you're interested in. And if you just sort of collaborate with people to do new and different stuff, then you really can. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. The story of 97X begins in 1981 when Doug and Linda Baylog bought a small town top 40s oldie station. Can you tell us more about them and their background and that purchase for that station? Sure. So uh, Doug and Linda were sort of, you know, typical 80s professionals working in Chicago. Um, Doug worked in TV broadcasting and Linda was a VP at an ad agency. And um, they had had a summer home in Wisconsin that they really liked. And they realized that, you know, living in, in Chicago and sort of playing the 80s rat race was not the life that they wanted to have, that they really, you know, sort of enjoyed the the community and the small townness of their summer home. So they wanted to find a family business in a place like that small Wisconsin town where they had their summer home. So they weren't looking for radio necessarily, but they were just looking for something that built on their professional strengths in broadcasting and advertising. So um, because 97X was never supposed to work, because it was so hard to make that station make money, it was available for sale. <laughs> uh, and in 1981, they bought it um, because they liked Oxford, right? It was, you know, a, a community where they could, you know, have a small business and be a meaningful member of, of the community. So, um, 
yeah, so that's that's why they bought the station is because they they wanted to live in a place and have jobs where they could live their values rather than sort of the big uh, super powered corporate life that they had been uh, pursuing in Chicago. Absolutely. And it's very interesting how their background informed a lot of their decision making processes for the station, because in order to get 97X off the ground, Linda, who had an advertising background, she held focus groups to attract listeners and advertisers. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what they found out that helped them shape their vision. Sure. So uh, one of those focus groups grew into that rock advisory board. Um, and they met at the uh, Oxford Pizza Hut, <laughs> you know, another sort of signal of the 80s. Um, so uh, what the Rock Advisory Board said a lot was, so, so this is 1983. So MTV is like sparkly and new and broadcasting a lot of new wave into people's homes. Um, and uh, college students typically had greater access to cable, right? Like cable came in your dorm. I went to Miami, cable came in the dorms. Um, so they had access to MTV, but they couldn't, what they said was they couldn't find any of that music that they were accessing on MTV on the radio. And that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear not the same stuff they always heard. So this then became sort of, um, you know, uh, radio, it became the station's kind of mission in a way, right? We want to play more new and less of the same, right? Because that's what they heard from their focus groups, from the Rock Advisory Board, that that's what listeners wanted. So when the station eventually made their format switch, there's a legend that has continued to endure all these years, largely because of what the legend represented in terms of the station's identity. Could you tell us more about that legend and its impact? Sure. So um, although the format switch was more gradual, there is this legend um, the I encountered it first when I started listening to 97X in the early 90s. So it, it goes back quite a long time. There was a legend that the station sort of kind of did a record scratch format switch um, on Labor Day weekend 1983 with the broadcast of U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday. And, you know, as I say in the book, like all legends, this sort of distills what was a much more complicated process into like a, you know, very spectacular uh, and representative uh, story. And what the story represents is a couple of things, right? So um, Sunday Bloody Sunday is a song about um, two different Irish uprisings, right? That's what Bloody Sunday is. And then it's used to then as a metaphor for the civil rights movement in the US, right? So it's a very political song about um, resisting oppression, right? So kind of a lefty pro political song. But it also has a lot of debts to um, the Clash, right? It's sort of known uh, in U2 scholarship that um, the U2 modeled themselves on the Clash. Um, you know, you can hear it in similarities between the Edge's guitar on that song and Mick Jones's guitar on a song like maybe Police on My Back. Um, so the choice of Sunday Bloody Sunday conveys something about how 97X understood themselves, right? As sort of, um, you know, independent in a political way, right? Because Cincinnati at that time was whipped up into a moral panic over um, sexual song lyrics from Prince, right? So it's, you know, at the time Cincinnati was a 
you know, beacon of conservatism when it came to popular music. And um, by choosing a song that references um, multiple uh, liberatory political uprisings and the clash, uh, that's a real statement about, you know, sort of being not uh, conservative in in a number of ways, so much so that um, the liner or sort of recorded station ID that they started to use once they uh, rebranded or reformatted as Modern Rock was Cincinnati's only Modern Rock station isn't in Cincinnati, right? Sort of using the geographic distance between Oxford and Cincinnati as a metaphor for the like the ideological difference between 97X and the sort of uh, quote unquote moral majority um, in in Cincinnati. You know, that legend really stuck out to me. And earlier you mentioned that um, there was a 40th anniversary modern rock 500 list that just that just finished. And I thought it was very interesting that given that station legend, that Sunday Bloody to Sunday did not even crack the top 10 of that list. I thought just by that alone, it would have made single digits. So I was very surprised by that. Yeah, it never it never topped the modern rock 500. Um, if you look just at the data in terms of, you know, what tended to be or what was most frequently the number one song. Uh, it would be how soon is now, um, which interestingly, I just learned about this from a tweet from Jessica Hopper last week. Uh, I, as an American, thought that that song was about the sun and air, as in like outside. But no, <laughs> Morrissey is English. It's a song about Prince Charles. And so that totally reshaped how I understood that song. But I think that also indicates that um the station's kind of politics, right? Because if that is really a song mocking Prince Charles, and that was, you know, sort of the the number one song on the Modern Rock 500 for years, um, I think that's another sort of indication of what uh, kinds of music the station really valued. I think that's a great segue to talk about the politics of the station and the countdown, because that countdown became a bastion for the station to reflect a rebuke of Reagan's brand of family values oriented politics. And I was wondering if you could tell me how that countdown played a more active role in that specifically. Um, so um, 97X never shied away from playing songs with political lyrics. So for example, during um, the first Gulf War, I was in junior high when that happened, listening to 97X at the time, um, many broadcasters, including the BBC band, the broadcast of certain songs about war, right? Um, you know, like uh, Elvis Costello's Oliver's Army. Uh, you couldn't play that. Um, you couldn't play um, the B-52's Channel Z because that was about nuclear apocalypse, things like that. Um, but throughout both uh, both of the Gulf Wars, actually, um, 97X continually played songs with anti-war political messages. Um, there's a record of this in one of the local... Uh, high school student magazines, right, talking about how during uh, the second Gulf War, um, the station played was the only one locally playing very political songs. Um, And I think it's interesting that, you know, this is a local context where on the one hand, it was the epicenter of what would become the parents resource parents music resource council, right, this Tipper Gore led, you know, moral panic over song lyrics. Um, and that's the the sort of moral panic I referenced earlier. That started in a an elementary school in the suburb of Delhi, right? Over parents concerned about Prince's song "Let's Let Pretend We're Married," right? It's a song about sex. Um, and then a little later in 1990, uh, 
the the city of Cincinnati sues the Contemporary Art Center for uh, showing a what they thought was obscenity in Robert Maple in the Robert Maplethorpe re- uh, retrospective that they that they showed uh, in 1990. And what's interesting about that is, you know, as it's I think it's pretty well known that Robert Maplethorpe and Patty Smith were, were like best friends, right? And so there's a strong and direct connection between the kind of art that uh, the local city wanted to ban and you know, kind of post-punk, punk royalty uh, genre foremother, Patti Smith, right? So, um, and I, I'll just close by saying, I think it's interesting that um, n- there was never any controversy about 97X. Um, and I think it's because they only really played politically challenging lyrics, right? You know, um, they never let's put it this way. They only played Lords of Acid like deep at night, <laughs> right? So there was never a lot of sort of songs about sex, but I mean, post-punk as a genre um, tends toward the more sort of traditionally and overtly political and away from, um, you know, more sex-focused lyrics. So I think that's that probably helped them sort of fly under the radar of local authorities. Well, it certainly reverberated with listeners because you note in your book that the station made a space where people who share the same values could feel like they belonged. And the important aspect of that was that it applied to a wide array of socioeconomic classes. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. So my former JPMS co-editor colleague, Eric Weisbard, talks about the sort of traditional uh, radio business way of thinking of sort of college versus blue collar listener, right? So, you know, the modern rock listener is traditionally sort of thought to be, uh, you know, middle class, college educated, things like that. Whereas the the AOR sort of more traditional rock radio listener is thought to be more blue class, right? So that's the kind of traditional radio orthodoxy, which of course, because it was the traditional radio orthodoxy, 97X did not obey. So I, I took a deep dive into station archives, looking at things like lists of people who won tickets to Lollapalooza 94, right? So it's got your name and your address. So I can tell, you know, what part of town you're living in, maybe your gender, maybe I can have some guesses about your ethnic background, things like that. Um, And that list is all kinds of people from all over, right? Rich and poor, urban and rural, um, men and women. And there's also, you know, quotes from listeners, uh, you know, from, again, all over the listening area in all sorts of jobs. So there's this one particularly evocative quote from an auto mechanic that says that he listens to WXY because it's the opposite of the music that the fat cats listen to, right? So he specifically identifies with the station as a working class individual, right? So it's, I think, um, sort of unique among modern rock radio stations in its sort of extremely broad audience. And I think that's an effect of defining the listener, not in terms of demographics, which is usually how radio defines their listeners, you know, like a market segment, women 18 to 34 or whatever, but in terms of values, right? 97X said, you know, our listener is someone who cares about having their horizons broadened. They want more new and less of the same. They want to be treated intelligently. And, you know, for 97X, being treated, you know, the desire and uh, being deserving of being treated intelligently is not based on class status, right? Anyone could want those things. So again, it's, you know, thinking about values rather than numbers really shaped how, how 97X understood its listeners. 
And by focusing on those values instead of numbers, you're able to explore more nuanced points that I thought were incredibly important. One of which was that the station did not necessarily represent freedom from the mainstream, but rather a freedom to push traditional limits. In other words, they didn't exclude pop hits, but challenged expectations through those pop hits. And the B-52's classic Love Shack was an example of that. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, B-52's icons of uh, post-punk history and and present. Um, that song uh, was station staple, uh, as were, you know, many of the B-52 songs. Uh, Rock Lobster was in the 2023 Modern Rock 500 Top 10. Um, and Fred Schneider recently said that song, uh, John Lennon told him that song inspired him to go to Yoko and say, we need to make a new album, right? Because you can kind of hear the Yoko Ono influence on that track, right? So um, that song hit number three on the Billboard Hot 100, right? So it was definitely a widely known pop tune, right? Um, at the same time, it's, you know, really, like many B-52 songs, kind of wacky and innovative. Um, 97X played Groove is in the Heart from Delight religiously. That was uh, the last program direct, last music director, Matt Shivs, uh, repeatedly said his favorite song. There's another instance where, um, this is in the online only era, where uh, there was a blog post about staff picks, you know, like, what are you listening to? And uh, program director Mike Taylor says that he's listening to the first Spice Girls album, right? <laughs> um, and then uh, Shiv says that he's listening to... Um, a new Scottish DJ who sounds like a combination of Rick Astley and James Murphy, i.e. Calvin Harris. I thought that was a hilarious description of Calvin Harris. But yeah, um, so there was this idea that it's, again, it's not about excluding something because it's, ew, it's pop, it's mainstream, but it's about trying to find like, what is the most cutting edge of that mainstream, right? And and using that to kind of help push push against the boundaries of what modern rock is, of, of what the mainstream is, any boundaries, whatever. I thought this challenging of pop expectations was really interesting because it reflected a postmodern disregard for master narratives. But in the 90s, you cleverly note that the rejection of master narratives became one of its own. And I, I wanted to pick your brain about that. Yeah, so there's a kind of, I guess I would say, famous uh, sociology paper uh, called... Uh, uh, oh, <laughs> I can't remember the exact title. It is uh, From Highbrow Snob to Omnivore, right? Um, and it's about this idea that, um, so these two sociologists, Peterson and Kern, survey, so, survey college students in the early 90s, right? And basically they, they discover that um, whereas highbrow taste used to be about, you know, sort of exclusively listening only to high art, right? Like classical music or jazz or something like that. Um, now, highbrow taste is about listening to both sort of, you know, fine art and other low, select lowbrow genres, right? So the, the, the sort of uh, the way that one indicated one's refined musical taste was through the sort of, you know, I listen to everything but country or I listen to everything but hip hop, right? The sort of this ability to, um, you know, uh, transcend narrow boundaries um, and and be flexible, right? Which, you know, sort of meets up with neoliberal ideas of like, you know, you need to be flexible. You need to, um, you know, sort of have flattened uh, rather than hierarchical structures, things like that. So it's definitely different from the old modernist way 
of organizing elite status, um, but it's still a way of organizing elite status and not the sort of deconstruction of it. One of the ways I thought that was interesting that the station was breaking down conventional wisdom was that they adopted a television programming model by transitioning from shift to block programming. And first, I want to know, can you be able to tell our listeners what the difference is? And then you note that one of your uh, one of the po- programming blocks was Extra Beats, which was your favorite. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about Extra Beats as well. Sure. Thanks for that question. So given Doug Baylog's background in TV, they decided to program the station according to themed blocks, right? So if you think about like morning game shows, afternoon soap operas, um, you know, Dick Wolf shows, whether it's Chicago, whatever, Law and Order, whatever in the evening, right? So there's this idea that different kind of genres of content go in different time blocks throughout the day. That's the TV model. Whereas radio tends to play the same content, but maybe in, um, sort of, uh, lighter or heavier versions, right? Um, so that, there's this idea that um, as the day gets later, the audience gets younger, right? So you play more um, sort of benign stuff in the morning when grandma's listening and you can play a little heavier stuff uh, in the in the evening, right? So anyway, 97 Knock was programmed more like TV. So it had blocks for uh, different genres of music, right? So there was uh, Blue Monday, which was a blues show. There was Dreadlocks, which was a reggae show. Uh, there was a comedy hour for a while. There were two programs for local music, homebrew and local licks. Um, and of course, my favorite, Extra Beats. So Extra Beats was their uh, dance music program. And it started in the late 80s and uh, really took off in the early 90s under uh, music director Jay Foreman. And what she did um, was, uh, so this is about a month or two after the BBC debuts Pete Tong's Essential Selection, which is kind of the first big dance music program on, on mainstream radio, um, Foreman proposes, and there's a station memo about this, that um, the Extra Beach show be treated more like a DJ mix and less like a traditional radio program, right? So this is she's right on the cutting edge of radio um, at this moment doing that. So... Um, yeah, so Extra Beats uh, started in the late 80s, became a sort of DJ-like mix uh, in the early 90s, and then persisted through to the end of the station's broadcast era in 2010. It's the station's longest-running special program, and um, it really, um, from from flow sheets and from what's on the uh, Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, in terms of what was played on... Uh, extra beats in the online only era, it was really expansive in how it understood alternative dance. You had everything from the revolting Cox to seal in the same show, right? So seals crazy was on the same list. Um, the same show as, uh, multiple wax tracks bands. Um, you know, so it was again, uh, super expansive. Um, and it was really kind of formative to me growing up. So around the same time that the station is making this transition to programming blocks that modeled more television, around this time, there's major deregulations happening in the telecoms industry in the mid-90s. And we were discussing narratives earlier, and one master narrative you explore as a result of this period was this Nirvana changes everything narrative after corporate radio tapped into this booming market for alternative rock. And I, I would like to know if you, if you could break that narrative down further for me and what it really represented in, in amidst all these changes. 
Yeah, thanks for that question. So conventional wisdom today is that basically smells like teen spirit arrived on the scene and voila, there is a there is grunge, right? So um, there's even a movie, a documentary called 1991, the year that punk broke the US, right? So there's this idea that, you know, modern rock was never really popular until Nirvana arrived on the scene with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, but that's not a correct reading of the situation. Like I mentioned earlier, Love Shack was number three on the Hot 100, right? So modern rock had been on the pop charts, right? If you think about uh, Depeche Mode's Violator was released a couple years before um, Nevermind, right? That, you know, Depeche Mode, again, doesn't get more centrally modern rock than Depeche Mode, but they're doing stadium tours, <laughs> um, you know, with, with Violator. They enjoy the silence, huge MTV hit, right? So, um, but if you think about, well, what's different between Enjoy the Silence and Love Shack on the one hand and Smells Like Teen Spirit on the other hand, um, Depeche Mode started off as a synth pop band, right? Um, the B-52s is made of gay men and women. Um, RuPaul made her TV debut in the video for Love Shack, right? So um, it's the Nirvana changed everything story is really a story. This represents a shift in what kind of music and what kind of musicians represented modern rock on the pop charts, right? Because it, we see this shift from, you know, sort of weirdos making electronic music or, you know, kind of crazy music where you yell tin roof rusted, right? So sort of um, more kind of innovative, less traditionally or straightforwardly guitar-driven rock music had been on the pop charts before. But what Nirvana does is it recenters white men and guitars in the narrative about what kind of modern rock pop audiences listen to. And I'm glad you really touched upon that because it's really important when we consider one, how to accurately tell these stories. But one thing I really truly love about your book is that not only do you tell the story of this station and the people in it, but you present a lot of really astute ideas about the larger systemic issues that impacted their story. And I just wanna read a quote from your book that I found really compelling and it's, these economic circumstances existed because the U.S. government, during both Democratic and Republican administrations, implemented reforms at the federal and state levels that were motivated by a libertarian-leaning ideology that believed free markets, not laws or governments, were the best arbiters of social problems. And I just want to hear you more speak about that because I just thought that was so incredibly fascinating. And I think it really speaks to what you were saying about the impact of this Nirvana master narrative. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so you saw the first sort of wave of these kinds of reforms in the US in the 1970s with the case of New York City. You know, the famous Ford to New York drop dead, right? Um, New York City was broke. It asked for federal assistance. And the federal government said, no, you're on your own, right? So this idea that, you know, uh, you're on your own or they're, the public, the government is not going to sort of support you financially with the resources that you need to survive, um, is this sort of uh, what scholars call the ideology of neoliberalism, right? Is that everything should be addressed at the level of private markets and that, um, you know, the public sphere should not exist as such. And you see this really sort of rollout nationwide in the 90s. And I think the two sort of 
clearest, perhaps most well-known examples of this would be the Telecom Act of 1996 and the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. So the Telecom Act deregulated radio ownership, um, which had previously, uh, one company could only own a limited number of stations in a single market, right? So the idea was that the government regulated radio ownership in order to promote competition. Well, when you deregulate that, basically you get clear channel, which is now iHeartMedia, right? So, you know, huge companies owning multiple stations all across the nation, broadcasting the same syndicated content to each, right? It's like the Walmartification of radio, right? Um, Because I I remember at that exact same time, um, Walmart came to our area and I was like, I can be in the Walmart uh, in my hometown or I can be at the Walmart in my college town and it's the exact same thing and I can't tell where I am, right? So you saw the Walmartification of radio, right? Because the idea is that markets, not government, not government should determine who can own radio stations. Um, the other act, the Welfare Reform Act of 1996, uh, and I mean, this has been in the news now recently with the, the debt ceiling negotiations about um, work requirements for federal assistance. Um, that The sort of work requirements like that were first introduced in the Clinton administration with the Welfare Reform Act of 96, which again says that, you know, well, in order to get any assistance from the government, you have to take care of yourself first. You have to work, right? Or show that you're working. Which is, again, this idea that private markets rather than public services are the way to solve social problems. Um, And what's interesting, and this is kind of a new project I'm working on now, and I'll be talking about it at the upcoming IOSPM, um, is that the the Telecom Act and the Welfare Reform Act really impacted um, alt-rock radio. I mean, we obviously can tell how the Telecom Act independent, you know, sort of uh, how the Telecom Act impacted the business model for alt-rock radio, right, with the clear channel and all that syndicated stuff. But um, as the alt-rock radio bubble started to burst in the late 90s, um, programmers decided to narrow cast to their core audience of young white men, because women were thought to be more likely to defect to something like um, adult alternative, or, you know, sort of alternative adult contemporary with like Sheryl Crow um, or something like that. So they, they narrow cast to this audience of white men by playing music that reflected the kind of masculinity um, that they believed these men bought into and sort of identified with. And that kind of masculinity is new, right? Because the Welfare Reform Act basically is a reflection of shifting uh, gender and sexual norms, um, whereas, so for example, norm, yeah, it's not even really norms. Gender and sexuality are policed less in terms of norms and more in terms of your capacity for private responsibility. So if you think about Kathy Cohen's famous article about the figure of the welfare queen, right, she's demonized not because she has abnormal sexual behavior, right? Um, she's had a lot of kids because she's had a lot of heterosexual sex, presumably, right? So it's not that her sexual behavior is uh, non-heterosexual. It's that she is not privately responsible for the costs of her sexual behavior, right? She's relying on public assistance. So this kind of masculinity um, that you see in like Trent Reznor and Billy Corgan, right? The sort of politics of private aggrievement um, is really reflected in the Welfare Reform Act. So it's it's, it's a really interesting sort of um, story about you know, sort of the neoliberalization, both of the radio business, but also of masculinity. And that's, that's why you get kind of Nickelback by the early 2000s. 
Yes, and that neoliberalism, uh, I'm, we're going to explore that a lot later because that stuff really fascinates me. Um, but what's really interesting about what was affecting radio at this time was that, this, as you say, this wall martification of things, stations that represented more diverse and inclusive voices were starting to get cut out of the market. And by 2006, the 97X was on its way out and Doug wrote a goodbye letter outlining the economic challenges that the station was facing. And there was a loss that was felt all over the world. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the response from the international community. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was actually Linda who wrote the letter in 2004. Um, Linda was sort of more the, Doug was the public face, but Linda was the you know, sort of the woman behind the curtain uh, running everything. So Linda wrote this letter that she put on the website, uh, just sort of, you know, kind of explaining um, the the economic circumstances they were in and why they sold the station. But this, um, you know, it prompted an international response. So the station nearly closed twice and actually closed then a third time uh, in 2010. So there's multiple rounds of sort of response. Um, but uh, for example, by the final close of the station, um, the the station, the internet station had a cult following in Brazil because there was a Brazilian music journalist that was writing uh, rave reviews of it repeatedly, right? So um, uh, the Gothamist uh, reported on the station's final clothing, closing. So it really, the impact was felt around the world, but I think the most um, sort of, uh, I guess, sort of consequential for WOXY sort of uh, uh, example of this would be, so the... The second time the station, uh, the station's existence was threatened um, in 2006, um, you know, this, the information was all on the website. There was um, message boards um, that were still up um, even after the, the station stopped formally broadcasting um, in, uh, I think it was March 2006. I can't remember exactly which closure was March or May. Um, but anyway... So a week after the station stops broadcasting, a Silicon Valley uh, tech entrepreneur writes on the boards in all caps, I have come to save the station, right? So he was, basically he had a, a startup that was what we would now call something like Uber, but for used CDs, right? It was a platform where individual users could, um, you know, buy and sell used CDs, basically. Um and he wanted the station as kind of a value add or a loss leader, right? You know, he, he needed brand identity and WOXY brought brand identity. So he, um, he bought WOXY uh, Sound Unheard um, just because he, you know, he needed, um, he needed their cred. But again, and he did, he did that because, because it had that cred, because it had that community of listeners that really, you know, um, gave this station actual authenticity. I think the person you're talking about is Bill Nguyen. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So this was interesting because I wanted to ask that last question, and I and I and I and I think the history with with Bill Nguyen is very fascinating because I want to ask that last question because the move online and that cultivation of an international audience had an interesting effect in which, as the audience grew more dispersed around the globe, listener taste became more narrow. And I want to understand how that happened. Like, were the changes that were happening in radio in the U.S. also happening in other global markets? Or was this a harbinger of internet streaming that was taking shape in the mid-aughts as a precursor to the Silicon Valley nightmare that we have now? Um, I know that's a very broad question, but these are I, I was really interested in this. Yeah, so it's there's a number of things contributing to this. So 
as the audience sort of broadens out beyond the Cincinnati area, um, the sort of listener preferences um, kind of become more standard and less specifically centered on um, WOXY's history, right? And it's sort of what it understood the story of modern rock to be. And there's a couple contributing factors. One of them is just, it's not as tight knit a community anymore. And people are coming from a lot of different backgrounds, right? And it's not just, you know, sort of a, a very close knit community um, who all have the same shared background and understanding of, of what this is. Um, at the same time, in the early 2000s, we are, 2002 is the 25th anniversary of punk, 1977, year zero. And we see a lot of sort of retelling, like sort of official retellings of the history of punk and post-punk and modern rock. Um, Rough Trade releases a 25th anniversary box set. Um, there's another box set uh, celebrating punk. Uh, Simon Reynolds' Rip It Up and Start Again, the book about post-punk comes out. So um, there's also this emerging sort of orthodox narrative of what post-punk and modern rock are that, that people are familiar with. Um, and um, there's also a sort of the emergence of indie rock as a genre out of modern rock as a radio format. So as we talked about earlier, um, 97X understood modern rock as sort of very stylistically broad, right? It had a blues show, it had a reggae show, it had um, uh, the electronic dance music show, they played goth, they played alt country, they played spoken word, they played Laurie Anderson, right? So it was a plethora of styles. And what made modern rock modern rock was its um, conditions of production, not its stylistic features, right? Because modern rock grew out of the sort of indie label movement from punk, right? So if you think about like Rough Trade or Factory or 4AD, um, right? So it was the idea that this was music produced by small independent um, record labels outside of the sort of, you know, universal Sony BMG big corporations, right? So what unified modern rock initially was the conditions of the, the independent conditions of production. But in the early 2000s, we start to see indie rock as a sort of stylistically homogenous genre that is not united by conditions of production that happens in both indie labels and major labels, but is united by this sort of sound, right? And this is when you see, you know, um, Modest Mouse, the 1975, um, you know, uh, Muse even starts to come out of this, right? So it's a very sort of narrow guitar-focused rock and roll, right? And that's what indie becomes. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of which is um, that music licenses well, right? Because it's sort of a, a low key kind of sound. It's attractive for people who want to license it for things like commercials, right? So that became lucrative and that really kind of motivated um, industry activity, right? So, so there's a number of reasons why um, why the modern rock 500 sort of becomes a little more narrow and less expansive. And it's not just happening um, with sort of 97X or even the radio industry, but there's, there's kind of a lot going on at that time to kind of shift how the broader public understands what indie rock is. So as you mentioned earlier, the station would go off air three times, but there were some elements like the message boards that stayed active a little while longer and there is something you write that I found very fascinating, which you say, WXOY may not be broadcasting music anymore, but it continues to exist both as a philosophy and as radio. 
and it's that as radio that I was wondering if you could tell us more about. Sure. So I'm I'm following uh, radio studies scholar Andrew Bottomley here, whose uh, book uh, Soundstreams uh, came out a few years ago with the University of Michigan Press. And there he says, okay, so uh, what is radio? If you know this American Life is both broadcast and a podcast, you, you know, like we can't really define radio as a device or a technology anymore because people consume radio on many devices. Right? I can listen on FM broadcast. I can listen on internet broadcast. Um, I can listen to a synchronous broadcast. I can listen asynchronously. And in fact, me personally, I tend, especially for, um, you know, uh, talk radio programs like This American Life or, or whatever, I tend to listen to that mostly asynchronously. You know, um, I listen to BBC Radio One um, often asynchronously. I'll listen to the Essential Mix when I'm working out, that sort of thing. So, with the advent of internet broadcast and podcasting, and you know, all of this, these new technologies that allow radio to be a lot more things, right? You know. Um, Radio, for example, includes social media, right? As um, you know, uh, BBC Radio One DJs ask for people to uh, text or WhatsApp them and then read these online. Um, Rinse uh, FM has a very active Instagram and TikTok, right? So if radio is not a technology, well, what is it then? And, and so Bottomley says, well, what makes radio radio is not any objective thing. It's not an object or a technology or a device. It's an experience, right? And it's that ex what he calls the experience of liveness or being together in the moment, right? With, with the program, with the other people who've listened to the program. So if, if radio is not a thing, but an experience, then you can say 97X exists as radio because it continues to be something that people use online media to experience today. There are, well, I was just on the WOXY Forever Facebook page this morning, and uh, Luann Gibbs, aka board user Miss Kitty, is one of the more active members, I would say most active members of the WOXY community then and now. Um, she curates a weekly playlist of 97X-like songs that people, that users contribute to on Spotify, right? So if people are building Spotify playlists um, from current music that they think reminds them of the music that 97X played, people are still having this experience of WXY as a, a kind of broadcaster even, right? You know, when they listen to that Spotify playlist, I think the last weekend's Modern Rock 500 is another great example of that, right? Um, it's something that um, people spent a lot of time producing 40 hours of radio broadcast, right? Um, so, you know, again, it's something that they came together to do. It was broadcast. People listened to it. Um, it's now hosted um, for asynchronous listening on the Inhaler website, right? So it, the experience of WOXY or WOXY as experience, as an experience we share with others, is something that is ongoing. And um, from that perspective, I think you can say that WOXY still exists as radio. And I'll just, I didn't, I don't talk about this in the book, but since this is a, an academic podcast, I will say this. Um, I'm someone, I mean, my training's in philosophy. I tell people I was raised by Kantians and phenomenologists. So I tend to lean way more towards the, like, you know, we can know experiences rather than we can know objects. I don't know if we can know objects, <laughs> we can know experiences. So I think that sort of also kind of shapes 
um, my affinity for Bottomley's argument that that what defines radio is this experience rather than you know a, a, an objective medium. Well, let's talk about how that experience as radio has continued to endure because that spirit has continued to live on. And you cover some examples in your book, such as amateur archives and personal websites. But one of those examples I wanted to ask about is the podcast Rumblings from the Big Bush, hosted by station DJs Dave and Damien, which you say stirred up some very powerful sense memories for you. Uh, Can you talk about those memories in relation to the experience as radio? Yeah, so... um... I think this is, again, a great example of the community. So Dave and Damien were DJs in the 90s and then went on to do other great things. Um, Although nothing as great as acquiring um, a chainsaw carved Elvis statue for the station. That might be their greatest WXY accomplishment. But anyway, um, so they they still live in Cincinnati and they regularly go to shows together. And they noticed that people would constantly come up to them and talk about 97X, right? Um, You know, even into, you know, uh, the last few years up before the pandemic. So 2018, 2019. So they're like, you know, we should do a podcast about the station because people still care about it. And, um, as part of that, um, they have, so a lot of people have preserved, uh, recordings from the station. So there's a lot of, um, old sort of the in-house produced ads, the, um, recorded station IDs, and it's, it really sort of, brings you exactly back to the experience of listening to 97X when you hear the same voices that you heard on the radio and the same ads, right? So there's a, I think people's most beloved station ad is for uh, 97X cash coupons, which was a coupon book, you know, like that you can sell for a fundraiser um, and the money goes to charity. Well, so uh, the station manager at the time, Steve Baker, was a one-time music education uh, major and classically trained vocalist. So he sang 97X cash coupons to the tune of uh, Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra, which you might also know as the theme from 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, I won't attempt to do that here. I'm not a vocalist. But, you know, it just, in the same way that you, like, remember song lyrics from a song you knew 30 years ago but you can't remember what you had for breakfast it was just it was just like that experience right like the 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 sensory memory just you know it was like uh, it was like no time had passed at all so your book closes exploring this concept of hipster capitalism which wxoy's philosophy really opposed what is hip what is hipster capitalism and why was it so resisted so hipster capitalism is a variation on neoliberalism or sort of, you know, sort of a small phenomenon under the greater uh, umbrella of neoliberalism. So hipster capitalism takes DIY production or do it yourself and turns it from what it originally was as a resistance to sort of mass industrial capitalism, right? Sort of mass production. DIY was the opposite of mass production. When, I mean, the economy of mass production is done, right? Like that's why Detroit is like Detroit is now because we're not mass producing things there anymore. Um, So nowadays, um, we are basically left to fend for ourselves. So as, um, uh, you know, as college class of 2000, I've been through many economic downturns, the first of which was the dot-com bubble bust of 2001. So that thinking about this, um, in the dot-com bust, what happens is a lot of, you know, educated middle class, mostly white people uh, lose their corporate gigs and need to find a way to make money. So they turn their 
cool hobbies like brewing beer or making soap into a small business. And that's, you sort of see this come to a, a peak with Etsy, right? Etsy originally was a platform for indie producers, right? So hipster capitalism, um, on the one hand, represents this sort of transformation of DIY from um, a, a strategy to resist capitalism into like the main form of capitalist production, right? So that's one thing hipster capitalism is, but it's also gentrification, right? So if you think about, um, you know, sort of the indie scene in the early 2000s, the center of it was uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, right? That's where DFA Records was. That's where, you know, sort of all the clubs were. Um, it's precisely these hipster capitalist businesses like breweries. I mean, we see this, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for a number of years, and there's so many breweries there, and they're all just sort of gentrifying uh, rundown areas, right? So um, hipster capitalism also represents um, both literal and metaphorical gentrification, right? The sort of literal gentrification of places um, like Williamsburg, uh, but also the sort of metaphor, well, I mean, the gentrification of these uh, hobbies into profitable businesses. So this gentrification thing is really fascinating because you write about it in your book and you connect it to neoliberalism in which you explore how neoliberalism has gentrified modern rock's influence on Gen Z pop musicians. And you say this created a rather complicated musical terrain where the 21st century mainstream looks a lot like the future of rock and roll philosophy on the surface, but with no support network underneath. I know this speaks to some of the things you were just speaking about, how Etsy, for example, was a platform for this, and then now it's become this. A lot of this is tied to our, uh, our, our quote-unquote friends in Silicon Valley who want to make our lives better, so to speak. And so I want to know if you could tell us more about the impact of that influence, of this gentrification of modern rock. Yeah, so um, around the early 2010s, you start to see people quite literally talking about the gentrification of indie rock. Um, there are some critics that talk about indie rock as dad music, literally and metaphorically, right? It's for, you know, precisely the, the sorts of people that punks were, were railing against, right? Um, Middle-class property owners, things like that. Um, there's another uh, critic who calls it bougie, right? Um, because again, it's become a way uh, for Spotify to make money rather than, uh, you know, a way to sort of uh, practice our creativity outside of the constraints of the corporate world. So, um, for example, WOXY's original programming strategy of programming for um, listener preference rather than demographics is precisely what Spotify does, right, with... um, you know, it's sort of personalized um, and vibes-based playlists. But Spotify is not doing that in order to help listeners become more independent and, and work in cooperation with listeners to do that. Spotify is doing that to extract data from users for free, right? So it's similar or analogous in form, but very different in effect and motivation. So... I didn't have this question planned, so i just just spitting this off the top of my head. Um, with that whole like data mining thing, I know it's like hard, really impossible to kind of separate ourselves from all the way that the stuff is getting integrated in our lives. But do you see if there do you see avenues of individual responsibility as like consumers in that? Like it, perhaps maybe a focus on buying more physical media. I'm just curious about how to push against that, really. Oh, that's a big question. I think, 
I think there's no one, it's not something that we can solve at the individual level, right? So it's not going to be about sort of responsible consumerism and buying vinyl and things like that, because there's, you know, environmental costs to vinyl, um, the demand for vinyl currently outpaces the capacity for producing it, right? So it systematically advantages bigger artists and labels over smaller ones. So I, I don't think there's an easy sort of solution. I would say that the the solution has to be systematic and it has to be broadly political. Um, you know, I talk about in the end of the book, the, the thing that we can do to save the broken music industry stretches far beyond music. It's things like canceling student debt, reducing the cost of college, universal health care, right? Because if you lower rent, these were all of the things that people had you know, living in the Lower East Side in the late 70s and early 80s, you could have a part-time day job at like a coffee shop, pay your rent and have a lot of free time to create, right? So the the thing to do, I think, to um, fix the exploitation problems of both Spotify and the brokenness of the music industry are just kind of fix the basics, you know, and, and again, give people what they need rather than leaving them to fend for themselves. Because the reason why I was thinking in that direction um, was because of something that you explore in your book. In, in the theme of your book, you explore the idea that real independence is only possible when practiced with and for other people. And so with that in mind, I wanted to get a sense of what your thoughts were about the future of rock and roll as a philosophy and how that will evolve. Yeah, Um Good question. So I think um, within the 97X community, it continues to be practiced. Like I said, like with the the you know um, the modern new modern rock 500 last weekend, the plans to take it into the future, the ongoing Facebook and other social media uh, groups and things like that. Um, but I think as um, you know, sort of political abandonment worsens. I think we need this this idea more than ever. And this is not just a, an idea about music. It's an idea about, you know, our the fundamental ways we relate to each other, right? Are the goals of our life to um, be as little involved with others as possible? That's this sort of idea of freedom from that I think America sells to people, right? This is the freedom to stand your ground and shoot someone because they you know, walk on your driveway accidentally, right? So I think, you know, as we see this idea of freedom promulgated, uh, in, you know, increasingly promulgated, we need ideas like, like WOXY is the idea that, you know, well, if you really want freedom to do things like make a weird record, or um, write a weird book, or, you know, just um, play some music with your friends every Saturday, and maybe never make a record, but just have fun. In order to do those things, we need to take care of each other. And and I think you do see ideas like this. And I, I think the maybe most sort of interesting and worrisome examples right now of this is you might have heard how um, Atlanta jail support has been arrested and charged with uh, charity fraud, right? So here's a mutual aid organization. Um, that is practicing this idea of independence, but is getting arrested on fake charges of fraud because their activity does precisely the thing that the police state 
doesn't want them to do, which is help people. <laughs> so I think I think this question of, you know, um, are we really in this together or not is the political question um, of the moment. I think that's so incredibly well said. Thank you. Thanks. Robin, thank you so much for joining me today and for this great conversation. Thanks. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And I just want to say that what was really great about your book is that it's not just a history, but you explore these larger ideas about art and its reflection on humanity. And I believe that you accomplished that so admirably. And I think you should be very proud because this is an excellent book. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I, I'm glad you think so. And I am a philosopher after all. So I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to do a little philosophy no matter what. <laughs> excellent. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Robin James. Her latest book is The Future of Rock and Roll, 97X WXOY and the Fight for True Independence, and is published by University of North Carolina Press.